And so there are a whole bunch of people now who are waking up to a world that's not kind, not compassionate, not gracious, and they're saying, what the heck happened? And they don't realize that we actually have shaped the world that we live in now by the words that we have used for decades. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Each week we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that has or has the potential to be problematic for the church by dialoguing with a guest who has experience with that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we won't always agree, but we won't argue. The goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. Our guest this week is Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics. He currently serves as the contributing writer for The Atlantic and contributing editor for The Week. He has published more than 3,500 articles in respected outlets such as The New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. He regularly contributes commentary to television, print, and radio outlets, and has been interviewed by ABC News, NPR, CNN, PBS, NBC, Fox News, and 60 Minutes. Jonathan, welcome to The Dismantle. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. That's quite a pedigree you got there. Well, you know, normally people don't read it to me uh, in full. So I was like, wow, I'm, I think I was relearning some things about myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Jonathan, before we, uh, I'm really excited for the topic we're going to dive into today. But before we get there, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's some of your background with spiritual stuff? Well, I was raised in the South, in the Deep South, uh, by a Southern Baptist preacher. Well, not really, just any Southern Baptist preacher. He was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, growing up, so which is the largest denomination, Protestant denomination in the United States, and uh, a televangelist, an author. And so I really grew up in the kind of the inner sanctum of the religious right in America. Jerry Falwell was a good friend of ours. I attended his college growing up. And so uh, it, it sort of has been an, an interesting journey uh, because I'm not uh, the kind of person who aligns with the religious right movement these days. Hmm. But uh, I think I have a profound understanding of an entire community of religious Americans, a, a large and robust community of religious Americans. And it's one of the reasons why I think I'm, I'm so fascinated uh, with religion in American public life. Because in America, you know, in, when I was growing up, I thought religion was just sort of, it was like, you know, water for a fish. It, it was the, the, the thing uh, that I swam in. It was just my existence. Mm -hmm. But as I've as I've, you know, I've moved now, I live in, uh, in, in New York City, uh, I've realized that actually, in, to some degree, that's true for America, that, that religion touches everything we do. And so I often look back fondly on uh, my childhood and the way I was raised because I didn't know that I was getting a real education for the job I'm currently doing. Hmm. That's really interesting. And, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but Obviously, there's a journey aspect to where you started to where you are now. Does that really come up a lot in your day-to-day -day life? I mean, it does. I, I think that there are a lot of people that I knew growing up who uh, inertia, sort of uh, theological, religious, sociological inertia, just kept them where they are. Okay. Uh, I often tell 
you know, I have some pastor friends that uh, I grew up with, and I often say, man, it must be nice to have figured out the world and God and spirituality by the time you were 20, because their views really haven't changed. They haven't evolved. That's not been my experience. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm a person who's always open to new ideas religiously, uh, sociologically, uh, politically. And over time, my views have changed. And uh, they've, in some ways, I think I've held on to some of my religious views. I, I, I still identify as a Christian today when I'm not traveling. I still attend church regularly in New York City, which, uh, as you know, is, is quite a feat around here. Not a lot of people... <laughs> Not a lot of people get up and sit on a train for 25 minutes to go take communion, but it is a, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, I'm kind of a mix of what I used to be and what I am now. You know, people often say like the way that you grew up, is that who you still are? And I say, well, it's, it's, uh, it's like rings on a tree. It, you know, it's who I was and it's who I am. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that's sort of how I think about that. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So today on The Dismantle, we're talking about faith and culture. Uh, we're diving into your new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, which, as I told you before I started, it's fascinating. I can't wait to finish it. Um, but Jonathan, you do what I think most Christians shy away from today, which is kind of to face faith and culture head on, not really leaving it unspoken. You're pretty vocal about it. Where did you first discover this passion for uh, reshaping Christian leadership? You know, uh, this is going to be this will this is going to be one of the most evangelical moments ever. But I uh, I went to college uh, and graduated with a degree in biology and chemistry, and so I uh, I went to work for a Fortune 500 chemical company, a subsidiary down in Atlanta uh, that was making pool chemicals. But they wanted to, uh, to hire a team to launch a home care cleaning products line. So there I go, you know, and uh, a newly minted college grad sitting in my cubicle, and I'd been working there for about six, seven, eight months, really burnt out on science, wondering what was next in life. And I just heard this voice. Um, and it's, it's sort of not an audible voice, but a voice inside me that I've always said I felt like was, was uh, divine. It was sacred. And it said, you're going to write. And mm. I just knew in that moment I'd never, I'd never taken a class on writing. I'd never published anything. Uh, I had no experience or education uh, in writing, but I said, I think I want to be a religion writer. And my parents thought, you're nuts. You're crazy. What are you doing? We just spent money uh, having you educated in a totally different field, but I knew it. And so within a couple of weeks, I'd packed up uh, all of my office supplies into a cardboard box and off I went and uh, really spent the next few years learning everything I could about writing, went back and got two graduate degrees in religion. And uh, to sort of fast forward, you'd say the rest is history. You know, right. it was a few years later, it was sort of the, 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 the doors began to open. I just from, you know, an excess of knocking, if you will. And, uh, and so now today I do that full time as a job. Do you have any hesitation when that was kind of, uh, you know, shown to you? Was there sort of this, this Moses, hey, I'm not equipped for this, this isn't what I'm supposed to do moment? Not at, uh, yes, but not at the time that it happened. Okay. Uh, the time that it happened, I knew, I just knew it was right. And I don't know how I knew. I can't tell you. I mean, maybe I was just naive, uh, dumb. 
enough at, I just turned 23, at 23 years old to, to believe something like that was true, but I did. Uh, the, the real doubts came in subsequent years. You know, that was October 2004. I quit my job. Uh, my first article published in May of 2007. So that was almost three years in between there, which was dozens and dozens of article pitch rejections, uh, three book proposals completely turned down by everybody in the industry. Wow. Uh, nobody would give me a chance. And so I thought, did I hear that correctly? Is that really what this was all about? And uh, so it was, uh, and there have been moments since then where I've really wondered whether that was true or not. But at the time that it happened, I think it just hit me, my 22-year-old self, in such a way where I, I absolutely believed it was the path for my life and I was willing to make sacrifices and changes to pursue it. Hmm. Now, in my experience, there's always a story behind a great work of art. Uh, tell me a little bit about the experience that led you to write your latest. Yeah, well, I had been fortunate enough uh, to write three books by the time I turned 30. Wow. And the thing is, I will tell you, I'm self-aware enough to know that a 30-year-old just doesn't have 150,000 words of wisdom to give the world. No. And so I had gifted the world far more than I had to offer. And so when I moved to New York City now about five years ago, I had finished my third book and I said, you know, the, the Christian industrial complex, the book publishing industry that I was a part of, they encourage folks to write every, basically every two years to churn a book out. And I said, I'm not doing it. Uh, yes. I don't, it doesn't feel right. So I just put down the pen. I said, I can write my columns. I can do uh, all kinds of other works, but I'm not going to write another book, at least not for a while, until I find something that I feel like is so important that I get, I get two absolute yeses to two questions. The first question is, does this book absolutely need to be written, yes or no? And number two, are you, Jonathan Merritt, the person to write it? And when I moved to New York, as I say in the book, I ran into this unexpected language barrier that it wasn't that I could no longer speak English, but I could no longer speak God. I really struggled to have spiritual and religious conversations with people. And, and you know, talking about the way I grew up, that was jarring. It was startling. It was, it was scary in a way. I mean, here I was a faith and culture writer, and I couldn't have everyday conversations about spirituality because either they didn't know the words, the meanings of the words I was using, or I didn't understand what they were saying, or, or, or the words that I was using, these sacred words had been a source of pain or, uh, or trauma for them. And so I started to look around and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. This is actually a serious trend. There are millions, perhaps tens of millions of other people like me who are now living in a pluralistic postmodern, even post-Christian America, trying to figure out how we can communicate about spiritual realities. And I said, wow, this is so important. This is so big and no one is talking about this. I, I'm, I think I, 
I think this is it. I think I'm the person to write this. And so that's why five years after the publication of my last book, uh, nearly five years, uh, I had a, uh, this book come out because I finally sat down and I spent uh, a little over four years working on this project to make sure I got it right. I'm blown away. <laughs> quite on, quite honestly, because it, it's so poignant of a point to say, not only did you, uh, did you change environments, you know, coming from the, almost the Bible belt, correct me if I'm wrong. And, no, it was about, yeah, I, and, it was outside of Atlanta. And diving right into the heart of, you know, what some would call the capital of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as culture, as far as music, as far as uh, politics, as far as so many things. And what a realization for you to not just say, oh, man, this is going to be tough, but to realize in the moment, no, this is the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at New York, when the rest of America looks at New York City, and, and this is not a, a prideful comment because, you know, New Yorkers, we, we're all, um, we think we're the best at, at everything and we have the best of everything. But uh, this is not a pride. This is an observation. When the rest of America looks at New York, it's looking into its future. Hmm. Uh, New York is sort of the leading edge of culture. And so I was experiencing things in New York in a, uh, a pointed way, a marked way that people all over this country are experiencing in part, not just thanks to wherever they live, but thanks to the internet, for example. Right. You know, when I walk out my door, I walk four or five blocks and I'm talking, I'm running into, talking to, interacting with people who come from all different uh, nationalities, races, uh, backgrounds, geographies, cultural mores, and, and sexual orientations, gender identities. And uh, thanks to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everyone else, even if you live totally isolated, you, you live on a thousand acre farm in the middle of Kansas, if, you've got, if you're connected to the internet, you're, you're encountering a piece of this in your own life as well. But I think what we're also seeing is particularly in urban and suburban areas, we're finding a, an incredible diversification. Uh, of Americans, and they're not reading from the same scripts we are. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're not drawing from a common spiritual vocabulary, and so people don't have to move to New York City to feel the pinch that I felt when I moved here. Uh, I think people are feeling it uh, maybe in more subtle ways. They know it, but they've never named it. Yeah. But when I was sort of thrust into the heart of it here, it gave me a an exaggerated picture of what Americans in the rest of sort of the heartland America is experiencing every single day as well. And so I've talked to people from disparate uh, locales who say to me, hey, I feel the same way you felt when I walk into work, when I log on to Facebook, when I go visit my family, when I go down to the grocery store, and I'm finding that these ideas are resonating with people. I just experience it in a very concentrated way here in the city. Mm. Now, as you began to dissect and dive into the modern Christian vernacular, uh, you commissioned research from the Barna Group. Is that correct? Yes. Can you talk to me about those results and maybe something you found most surprising? Yeah. So the Barna Group is uh, there. I've got some really good friends who work there. They're one of the premier kind of social research firms focused on uh, religion and public life in America. 
And uh, Barna was was one of the people I went to and I said, you know, I sense this is true of a lot of other people. I had a lot of anecdotal evidence, but I wanted to have more of a broad understanding of whether or not people felt the way I felt and why. Mm -hmm. So I I commissioned a study that we conducted last year with uh, a little bit over a thousand Americans. And we asked them, how often do you speak God? Literally, we asked them, how often do you have a spiritual or religious conversation? What we found is, is more than two thirds of Americans uh, are not having spiritual religious conversations on a regular basis. They don't feel confident to, to converse about these things. So even though nearly 71% of Americans claim to be Christian, and you know about 8% of Americans claim some other religious identification, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Baha'i, et cetera. Regardless, those people that they say that spirituality is important to them, they can't seem to articulate it in most of their lives. Only 7% of Americans have a spiritual or religious conversation on a regular basis. That 7%. Is, that's staggeringly low. Yes, and that's only, you're only talking once a week. Now, what I thought was, I thought, oh yeah, I thought back to the way I was raised. I said, okay. What about folks who, they go to church every Sunday, they, they're serious about their faith, they're really engaged. Surely those people, those people are having spiritual or religious conversations. Well, not really. Uh, among practicing Christians, that is Christians who attend church regularly, only 13%, one in eight, say that they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a regular basis. So we are not speaking about God, faith, spirituality, the inner life with any kind of regularity. And that to me was stunning. So this is where when I saw this data, I said, oh gosh, this is not just a personal problem. This is a cultural crisis. Something is happening here that there is a, you know, we as human beings, there's a natural um, uh, impulse that we have. If we care about something we talk about that something. All the you know, time. If you don't believe me, you go hang outside any daycare and Charlotte will be showing you pictures of, of little Tyler within five minutes. You, you care nothing about Tyler, but she's going to, boom, look what he did this week. He, look at when he ate his spaghetti. Why right. is she showing you these pictures? She loves Tyler. You walk down the streets here in New York, you'll, you'll hear conversations about the Yankees. Why? Because they like the Yankees or the, or the Mets, depending on where you are and who you're exactly. speaking to. But the things that we care about, we talk about. And yet, 70% of Americans, 71% almost say, my Christian faith matters to me. I I identify with it. It's part of my life. And yet, only 10% of those people have any kind of connection to it that, 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 that makes them talk about it on a regular basis. I wanted to know what was breaking down in that system. Why were we not feeling confident to draw from the language of faith anymore. Hmm. And it's interesting you say the the language of faith. A lot of those types of words we would call within the church as sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, things like redemption, salvation, justification, things like that, where it's, you know, you kind of have to be on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I think some may be listening and kind of listen to our conversation and wonder, well, who cares? Why is this important? Uh, Jonathan, why do you think 
speaking God matters. Oh yeah. So this is, this is twofold. I'll, I'll, let me break it down with two pieces of, of, um, information for you. The first is, is to give you a broad understanding of what's happening. I'll use Google Ngram data. So Google, everything these days, it's the six degrees of Google, right? It all goes back to Google. So no wonder this does too. So Google, uh, a few years ago, compiled books and newspapers and magazines and speeches and, and all of these words in the English language. And they uh, put it into a searchable database uh, where you could search the frequency of word use at any point in modern history. So you want to know whether a certain word declined or increased in usage in a certain time, you can go to Google Ngram, you can type in words, and it will show you a graph over time from 1500 to about 2008, 2010. Hmm. So we can search the word usage. And, and of course, um, you know, language geeks and uh, academics have jumped on this, and they've all kind of gone crazy and analyzed it and published peer-reviewed articles. What we found is is yes, big, fat, meaty theological words like redemption have declined, of course, but also common moral words, virtue language has all declined significantly. Courage words have declined by about 50%. Kindness words, compassion words have all declined. Hmm. Uh, The word grace has declined significantly. Uh, the word mercy has declined substantially. Uh, all of this over the course of the 20th century, all of the words that Christians call the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, all of these words that should matter to you whether you're religious or not, um, they've all declined. Right. Those are just moral words. Yeah, just moral, ethical, virtue words that are kind of part of what I would call the, the vocabulary of faith. So if so, you're not a religious person, it should, it, it still at least is relevant to you. But now you get to the question, okay, it's relevant, but does it matter? Well, it does matter. There's a, if, you know, I took a year of this project and just studied linguistics. And one of the things that I, I found was that the words that we use or don't use, shape our thoughts, our worldviews, our behaviors in ways that we didn't even realize until recently. Hmm. So if you use certain words, you think about those concepts uh, as an individual, as a society, your, your behaviors shift. So uh, a great example of this is, is there are futured languages like uh, English. We talk about future as, a, as something separate from today. Uh, a lot of other languages like uh, Asian countries, um, they don't have a future tense. They use one tense and you kind of d- discern from context whether it's the future or not. What we find is, is that speaking about the future as a distinct time from today makes us think less about the future than other cultures who have only one tense. So when you compare those cultures, you'll find that, that our culture, we will smoke more, we will practice uh, less unsafe sex, we will save less per capita from retirement. Because we talk about the future as distinct from the present, we think about it as less pressing. Wow. So, so these kinds of language trends show us that if we don't talk about God, if we don't talk about faith, if we don't talk about spirituality, then our lives, our eyes are not attuned to transcendence, 
And our lives are not, are not built around those, those concepts, those understandings. Similarly, if we don't talk about courage and compassion and grace and love and justice and mercy, then our lives are not built around those things either. We, we end up not living compassionate lives. We end up with a society that is not as kind as it could be, as merciful, as gracious as it could be. And so there are a whole bunch of people now, religious and non-religious, who are waking up to a world that's not kind, not compassionate, not gracious, and they're saying, what the heck happened? And they don't realize that it's a rhetorical problem, that we actually have shaped the world that we live in now by the words that we have used or avoided for decades. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. I think when people start to realize this, they go, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was happening right under our noses for so long. Sure. It's almost like the emperor's new clothes where you know somebody now points it out and you go, oh, and that gives context to your entire existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now you mentioned as you were studying linguistics, you discovered something uh, and I think you worded it as comeback languages. Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. you can you define that a little bit and um, and, and maybe the importance of that? Yeah, so I started um, I started when I was reading these books on linguistics. I started sort of um, realizing that there were a whole bunch of of uh, words, phrases I didn't understand that I kept running across, and one of them was the phrase "comeback language." What's a comeback language? Well, you know, there are so many thousands of languages that are spoken on planet Earth. And every year, some of those languages die. They, for whatever reason, genocide, uh, economic pressures, they disappear. But on occasion, there are languages that come back. They go to the brink of extinction and they come back. There, I was reading uh, yesterday about a tribal language uh, of, a, of an Indian tribe in Louisiana that historians had gotten back together and they had found a bunch of information about this tribal language and pieced it back together. And now they're teaching it once again to children wow. and they're bringing it back. So you can bring a language back. And I was shocked. Like, whoa, if a living language can die, a dying language can actually be revived. And I began to wonder, well, what is it that makes a language come back? How do you bring a language back uh, to life. And I started to kind of figure out what those principles are and then to overlay that onto the vocabulary of faith and say, we can actually revive the vocabulary of faith in 21st century America if we're only willing to give it a shot. Now, you write that as God's speakers, we have three responses, three choices to the fact that this language, uh, this vernacular of God speak is dying. Uh, could you unpack those three responses? Yeah. So, um, there are, whenever a language is, uh, is dying, uh, you can, you can take a number of approaches and two of them are not so helpful. One is what I call fossilization. And that's where you kind of circle the wagons. Um, when it comes to spiritual or sacred speech, um, conservatives really love this approach. It's one that says the way that I've understood this word is the way it should be understood. And so don't mess with it. I just want you to use the word, but don't, it doesn't need to change. So the way I've understood the word justice is the way it should be understood. The way I've understood the word blessed, uh, the way I've understood prayer 
don't mess with those concepts. Don't mess with those understandings. Let's just kind of circle the wagons and protect them. And so, you know, you go into certain churches and you go, hey, you know, you guys are talking about this word, but I don't think like maybe it, it means or it should mean what you're what you think it does. Hmm. And you're not going to last long in that church because they're, they've already figured it out. Uh, their job is not to wrestle with it. It's not to reimagine it. It's just to train people to go out and to, uh, to sort of uh, argue with people and convince them that, in fact, um, they're wrong and the person speaking to them is right and they need to change their views. That's what fossilization is, and that is the fastest way um, to kill a language. So, in other words, what you find is is that um, there are a lot of people out there who think that you, if you just hold on to those words and the meanings you've ascribed to them, that it's going to bring it back. And actually, linguists agree on this. Every language will either change over time or it will die. Hmm. There's no exception to this. If a language doesn't change, a language will die. And so, uh, it's, it's not a good approach. Approach. It's not a helpful approach. You'll chase away doubters, questioners, uh, skeptics. It's not an invitational approach. Uh, if you want people to kind of step into something that they, they may not quite understand or agree with. And so it's not a real helpful way uh, to bring back uh, a language. The other approach is uh, called substitution. And this is what like liberal folks really love this, where you basically say, oh, that word is, is triggering. It's um, not politically correct. It uh, bothers me. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, people don't really understand it. And so let's just get rid of it. Let's not use it. And so you kind of purge it from your vocabulary. A great example of this is like the word sin, right? Like sin is one of those sacred words that a lot of people don't like. And so they say, we're just not going to use the word sin anymore because it's just too problematic. So let's just not use it. and they stop using it. And then occasionally with substitution, they'll find a replacement word. So they say, um, well, we're not gonna talk about sin, we'll talk about brokenness, or we'll talk about messiness. Interesting. And what they've done is, is they haven't actually changed the concept. See, the problem was not the word. The problem was the idea attached to the word. And so, when you just get rid of the word, you haven't actually dealt with the real problem, which is the, the idea was problematic for us for some reason. So you've just switched out the box that carries the idea. Hmm. It's, it's not a real effective approach. Additionally, uh, one of the problems when it comes to Christianity, by the way, the same is true for Judaism and Islam, you know, we, we fancy ourselves people of the book. And we, uh, that means that our lives are sort of built around this sacred text. And that sacred text has certain words in it. And so eventually, when your spiritual formation gets you to the point where you're going to engage this sacred text, well, you start to find this word. You're bumping up against it. You realize it never went away. You just weren't using it. And now you're not even prepared to understand that text, to engage that text, to think through those concepts. And so it's not a really helpful approach. It's it, just like the first approach. It's well-meaning. It tends to be rooted in good intentions, but it, it's not really very helpful. And then there's the third approach. And this is the approach that you'll always find when a language comes back that people use, use which is... Um, 
the, the, the practice of transformation. So unlike fossilization, that protects words. Unlike substitution, that pitches words. Transformation is a process in which you play with words. You begin to reimagine those words. You begin to get serious about what the problems have been. And you begin to think about new ways that we can conceive of that concept, uh, talk about that thing in community that is more just, that makes room for more people, that uh, doesn't create unnecessary pain, that really represents God as a good and loving being who cares for all people. And so that is a really difficult process to get in a community and start to ask those things. A lot of people don't want to do that hard work. It's a lot easier to just say, get rid of it. That's exactly what I was going to say. It sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of work. And yet it's a lot of work to revive a language. It's a lot of work to keep an entire language in existence. It's a lot of work. Mm. But what you find is, is that's what's happening. And even when you look at the, at the Bible, that's what's happening in real time through the pages of the Bible. You'll find that later writers are playing with words in new ways. You're having Jesus, the Apostle Paul. They're taking scriptures and they're reimagining those, those, those Old Testament scriptures in ways they had never been imagined. Before. Right. You've heard it said, but now I say to you. So Jesus is doing the hard work of language transformation. And it was the reason why you had this explosion of a faith that began to use words in new ways. Do you think that that's possible today? Like, you know, I'm, I'm getting like almost goosebumps kind of thinking like this could be the explosion that makes a, a Christianity that has been outdated and uh, problematic for a lot of people start to become tangible. Do you think that that's possible in our modern culture? Well, I absolutely think it's possible. I think it's possible because uh, we've seen it happen uh, in other sectors. A great example, if you go to the south part of my neighborhood here in Brooklyn, there's a Hasidic Jewish quarter in Williamsburg. If you go down there, you're going to hear all kinds of fun, funky words that you don't understand. That's Yiddish. Uh, Yiddish basically was almost extinct uh, in the middle of the 20th century because it is a, a Hebrew dialect. Uh, that is spoken was spoken in the early 20th century mostly by European Jews and European Jews obviously many of them were killed in the Holocaust and so the language almost died out it wasn't something you could use in commerce it, it, it felt antiquated outdated just get rid of it and yet in the late 20th century it came back hmm. it saw a resurgence that there were whole communities of people who said this language matters this language binds us together. This language gives us life. This language is important. And so they decided to do the work to revive that tongue. And there are lots of examples of this, you know, not just, hey, oh, this tiny Hasidic Jewish community or this tiny tribe in Louisiana. If you go down to Hawaii, they're going to mahalo you to death. Uh, Hawaiian is a comeback language. That, that an entire culture of people said, we shouldn't let this language die. We should bring it back. And so they began to teach those words uh, to that culture. And it gives them a sense of community there. Uh, Catalan is one of those. Gaelic or Irish is one of those. And so you, you find that there are lots of examples. Modern Hebrew is probably the best example. Basically, it died off with the rise of the modern Israeli nation state. It's come back. It's now widely spoken again. 
uh, in, in Jewish uh, communities. And so I think, yes, absolutely, uh, the Christian uh, vocabulary can come back in 21st century America, but it takes people in real communities, not just in churches, but places wherever you live, work, and play, individuals entering into communities and to begin to wrestle with these words with uh, other diverse God seekers and God speakers in real time. Now, if those are people listening to our conversation, those people who really want to start this process to learn to speak God from scratch, what practical advice can you give to people who kind of feel that uh, that bubbling up inside of them? Um, you know, I have in my book, I have a whole section that's called um, a how-to guide for God seekers and God speakers. It's in the back of the book. And, um, you know, I try to get really practical about what it would look like to bring this back. But I think it means, it doesn't mean beating people over the head with your, your own like religious views. It doesn't mean, you know, cornering someone at the water cooler to make them talk to you about faith. It just means bringing other people who, uh, are interested in these concepts together and, and having conversations with them and, and intentional conversations to say, what are the most important words in the language of faith that we've stopped using because mm. we're uncomfortable or, or that uh, we, we maybe we've used them so often we don't even know what they mean anymore. And then beginning to have conversations about what those words should mean in our day for us. And then to go out in the world and use those words. Uh, that's a there's a, there's a whole process I put in the back of the book to help people do that. But the first thing is going to be the willingness to do it. If you, if you are committed to this, if you say, yes, these, these words matter, this, the vocabulary of faith matters, and it's something that's worth reviving, then I think we can all come together and begin to have uh, those kinds of intentional conversations. Hmm. Now, this is just off the top of my head. Uh, say we start doing that, say this process gets moving. After we learn to speak God, what do you think is next? You know, um, there are various ways that we can connect with God. Um, in, 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 in the Western world, one of the ways we, we do this is making noise. We speak words. Um, you can also learn to be still and know that I am God, as the psalmist said to just stop using words. That's also a sacred act. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of talking about one way that we can sort of engage uh, spirituality, which is to speak. And that is necessary, but also to not speak would be another discipline that I would say for a lot of us is a lost discipline. Uh, and then a third way is to incarnate which is to say to become those words, to embody those words. So yes, I want people to go and to learn to speak grace again, but that's not the end all be all. At the end of the day, they need to learn to be grace. They need to learn to embody grace in their everyday life. And that, that can be very difficult for a lot of people. And that is what Jesus is really talking about. It's not just hearing these things. It's not just reinterpreting 
old ways and, and old wineskins, so to speak, but it's living it and it's doing it and it's being it. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Jonathan, this has been a fantastic conversation. As we close, you're still at the mic. Uh, what's one thing you'd like to say to a church, maybe it's your church, or just the church community at large that would help us move in a positive direction? It could be on the topic we're talking about or just something that's on your mind. You know, I think so much uh, of this conversation is not like, I'm not giving people another to-do list item. Well, now you got to go out and do all these good things and have a spiritual conversation. Instead, I hope people will begin to think about what would it, what would it look like to form myself into the type of person who would be a God speaker, to be a person of courage, because it takes courage to speak God, mm. to become a, a person of vulnerability, because you have to be vulnerable to share kind of your inner life with people around you, to be a person of passion. You know, we talked about this earlier, that that uh, we talk about things we are passionate about. And deep down, a lot of us, we're not talking about God because we've lost our passion for God, if you really think about it. You know, that, that feeling that we got early on when we were really set ablaze for the things of faith, the pursuit of spirituality, that has sort of died away. No wonder we don't talk about things that we're really not that passionate about anymore. And so as a first step, what I would say to people is, what are you doing today? this week, this month, this year, to nurture in you a, a new sense of bravery, a new sense of vulnerability, a new sense of passion for the things of God, the pursuit of God for spiritual matters. I think that's a good starting point, is to think about personal spiritual formation and not just giving people another thing uh, to, to add on their spiritual to-do list. Mm. That's a great word. Thank you. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, how can they connect with you about the book or, or maybe something from culture you're digging right now? Yeah, so people can always find me at my website, which is uh, jonathanmerritt.com. Uh, that's two R's and two T's, M-E-R-R-I-T-T. -T. And they'll find not just the book there, but they'll find links to all of my re re recent articles, etc. And I think hopefully it'll be a good help for them. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure, friend. Thank you so much. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can visit us at dismantlepod.com, connect with us on Facebook, and visit us on Instagram. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com. <laughs>